When the Zeta beam wore off, we were in Ivy Town, greeted by the Atom himself. He'd just finished fighting a bevy of flying saucers, Justice League villains, and Hocus Pocus hucksters. We sat down with our notebooks. This was going to take some talking through. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. The Atom. Not to be confused with Adam Strange. <laughs> Not to be confused with Doctor Strange. No, I mean... Not to be confused with Doctor Fate. Oh, oh, there's a lot. Or Doctor Midnight. Ooh, ooh. Or Doctor Light. <laughs> a lot Not of to be confused with Doctor Light from the Mega Man series. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Or Doctor Destiny. Yeah. Or wow, yeah, we could go on. In other uh, news, we it's hot in California right now. It is. It's hot in California, and I'm and I'm not a fan. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm a large man. I run warm. Uh, I have hairy arms and legs. It's not. It's not fun. We're not. We're not. We're not fans of it. Yeah. Anyway, this all has to do with comics. I promise. Um, <laughs> you remember? You remember Alice? This song's about Alice. Exactly. Ooh, deep cut. Um, yeah, we're doing the Atom today. Uh, only issues four through ten because he's a bi-monthly comic uh, at this point. Um, but a full comic, which I mean, you know, good for you, Ray Palmer. Good for you getting the the full title to your name. With that, we're going to go through the entirety of 1963 all the way to the beginning of 1964. But it should be relatively quick, but there's a couple things that are noteworthy in these, and we kind of mentioned one of the things in the Justice League episode we did previously, um, which is kind of a catch-up issue that explains where the Atom is during that Justice League issue. And then there's something else I kind of want to talk about with the team-up that occurs. Uh, so we're going to start with... I know Joanne. Yes. No, I'm getting there. All right, cool. She gets mad if we don't mention her occasionally, and several people have not written into me asking me where Joanne is. So she's here. She's just around. She just... We've gotten better at what we do, and Joanne yeah. doesn't have to shot clock us. And so, you know, she she's just around making sure that we don't get on too many tangents about Dragon Ball Z. So what you're saying we is would. she's redundant headcount. No. <laughs> Joanne is Joanne is irreplaceable that and is priceless. As are all employees. That is the first time she smiled at me. <laughs> Ever. Oh, I and just got employed, I just got the death glare. Yeah, we've 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 employed her for years. And this is the first time she smiled at me and not you. Anyway, uh the Atom, number four, January nineteen sixty-three. The Atom helps a tiny alien return home uh while the alien was using a machine that basically granted shitty facsimiles of things that people wanted and the way that we know this is that snapper car is in this issue hey everybody he's getting around um snapper car wishes he had a boat and the alien's like hmm i'll give that kid a boat maybe he'll think something weird is happening and snapper it takes a while takes a while for snapper to get you know get on the hot trail that like things that he wants are just appearing out of nowhere and the adam sees this at one point as ray palmer and he's like i should probably follow snapper around and see what's going on with this he eventually finds the tiny alien and helps him return home. Uh, also, many of these issues are um, dual stories or duo stories. There's one story and then a, a completely unrelated second one. Uh, so the second story in this one is the Adam foils a crook who impersonates people. Uh, he hypnotizes and frames them for crimes that he commits. So he he dresses up like the people he hypnotizes 
and then commits a crime while they're doing something else and kind of essentially gives himself the perfect alibi and also gets them thrown in jail. Uh, the reason the Adam is around this is because, remember, Jean Loring, Ray Palmer's girlfriend, is a really good lawyer. So weird, strange cases get sent to her, much like Perry Mason. That's a deep cut for those of you over there who, who know who Perry Mason is. Uh, that is an old television show uh, about I'm, lawyers I'm and stuff. I'm trying to figure that one out. I believe... Uh, yeah, it was, it was just an old lawyer who, like, people came to, they're like, you know, who did, you know, impossible, impossible, uh, suits and stuff like that to, uh, prove innocence. It was, it's a good show. The, the Adam, number five, March 1963, Adam's friend brings home a diamond that has subatomic Atlanteans on it. I yep. just want that sentence to kind of sit in your brains for a second. There's Atlanteans who have turned themselves subatomic and are living in the micro-universe within this diamond um and when the atom finds out that they're there he stops a plan from one of them who is using the technology to turn people outside of the diamond into diamonds it's pretty loosey-goosey unfortunately and it's not very a lot of these stories aren't terribly narratively strong except for a couple of them and those are the best of them that is not where these stories shine there are other locations in which these stories shine um, the second story in Adam number five, he stops a guy who's impersonating the spirit of a Native American to get away with crimes. And there's some very non-PC, uh, white people talking like they think, uh, Indian Braves sound like kind of a thing. Mm, not good. Not good. Sorry. Excuse me. Native American Braves sound like it's, it's not good. The Adam number six, May, 1963, Adam stops a man framing a magician and his helper for robberies. <laughs> pretty sub, pretty standard. Um, the second story in this issue is a time travel issue, and there's a lot of time traveling going on because this is the third time, actually the second time we've seen the Adam time travel, because the first time we saw it was the last story we covered in the first episode with the Adam, the secret of Al Atom's lamp, or Aladdin's lamp. Um, God, I forgot that w- about that pun. <laughs> so did I. It's terrible. Um, I had to see it because I saw it in the anthology. It's the story right before the one we started with. And, um... He goes back in time using that weird magnet light construction that his fellow professor makes. And he helps Lady Jane de la Mer capture the infamous highwayman Dick Turpin. That's that's the whole kit and caboodle for that, <laughs> that story. Um, well, there is one other bit to it that goes nowhere. And I, cause I yeah. feel obligated to bring it up because it it occupies page space at least. Uh, mm-hmm. the highwayman's like, it's portrayed as though his real name is, uh, I think it's Tom Palmer, Thomas Palmer. Yeah. Tom uh, Palmer. And which is especially weird. Cause first off, I assumed that that was just something that Gardner Fox had invented because it felt like they were building up to, Oh, he's Ray Palmer's like great, 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 great grandfather. And then nothing happens with it. Uh, it's just yeah. a reason for him to go investigating in the past uh, but B, that's also not even A, the historical figure's real name. It was an alias that he worked under at one point, apparently. Uh, and B, it was, I think, John Palmer instead of uh, Tom. Yeah. It's there's just weird. Several inaccuracies like, going on here. It's almost like Gardner Fox didn't have Wikipedia. and uh, Or an Encyclopedia Britannica. That, you know... Actually, the thing that's crazy is at that point, that was probably still that like giant stack of books. I'm sure. I'm, and you know what? At this time, 
Marsden's wife was probably still writing for it. That was her job. She wrote for the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, we're going to move to the Adam number seven, July 1963. Adam and uh, this is the this is the first and only whole story in this episode that encompasses the entirety of the issue. Um, Adam and Hawkman team up, which is kind of cool. Um, Hawkman is trying to find some radiation that's emanating off a device that's from that he recognizes from Thanagar. And the Adam is trying to catch some crooks. They kind of cross paths. And when Hawkman kind of loses trail of the uh, atomic energy, he meets up again with the Adam. He goes like, hey, so this is what I'm doing. Can you help me? And Adam's like, of course, good buddy. Um, remember, Hawkman is not a member of the Justice League at this point. They're just crossing paths. But they're both Gardner Fox properties. So that's kind of the tie that binds them together here. Um, Adam is in Ivy Town. And Hawkman is in Midway City. There's some stuff about where Hawk Woman is at this point. I'm going to call her Hawk Woman. I'm not going to call Shaira Hawk Girl. I don't like it. It's degrading to her character. Hawk Woman is not on Earth at the moment, and I think we're going to cover that in the Hawkman issues. Um, but she is on Thanagar at the moment, so that's why it's not Hawk Woman and Hawkman helping out the Atom. It's just the two guys. What ends up happening is they find a race of creatures who are using this sort of atomic camera contraption yep for lack of a better term to take pictures of the earth and then every time they take pictures of it and they do something to the picture it happens on the actual earth so they've essentially created like a a scale model that they can manipulate and torture and they're holding the planet for ransom the the (laughs) the people of earth are like yeah we're not going to surrender to you tiny aliens and hawkman and adam stop them which is kind of cool. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, at the end of the story, we see Ray and Jean uh, going out, doing some bird watching, and they come across Carter and Shaira in their um, civilian attire, and they end up like having a double date, even though Adam and Hawkman don't know each other's secret identities. They just kind of go like, that guy seems like a cool dude. And that's just... <laughs> I'm going to talk about this later, but it, that's just how the, the issue ends. It's like they catch the bad guys, they, they save the world, and then they end up going on a double date. <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty wholesome all around. Even the aliens do something to the planet that doesn't actually kill anybody, which I thought was really funny. They're like, we're going to do it non-lethally just as a warning shot. I'm like, you just tore a fucking giant <laughs> hole in the planet. And you made like this huge crater. And that didn't hurt anyone. Okay, sure. I'll, I'll bite. Uh <laughs> We're going to go to the Adam number eight, September 1963. Second most important uh, issue because the, one of the stories in this one has to do with Dr. Light. Uh, Dr. Light escapes from jail and goes to his weird light dimension plane of existence that he uses. And um, the Adam tracks him down and goes to that dimension to try and fight him. And he traps the Adam in a light bulb that can fit the Adam in it. And he says, like, when I'm done, with, when, the, when the light bulb's done with you, you'll turn to gas and you won't be a problem for me anymore. And he leaves him in this trap um, and then goes to try and do the same thing with the Justice League. Now, the Justice League is off world at the moment doing something else in a Justice League issue. So the Adam has to break out of the light bulb by himself, go defeat Dr. Light, and then he arrests him. And then when he gets back, he tells Snapper about the story. And then the Justice League walk in and go like, oh, my God, Adam, where were you? This crazy thing happened. Let's tell you all about it. And he goes, sure, and I can tell you about my fight with Dr. Light. Go back and listen to our Justice League episode uh, right before this. And that's a whole thing. They're off doing another thing elsewhere on in the universe. And Adam is on Earth fighting Dr. Light. 
That is just the first story in number eight. The second story is he thought he he stops a thief from stealing miniatures and really elaborately painted playing cards. It's kind of a weird it's a weird caper, but it's small themed, and that's his gimmick. So oh, God, I didn't even think about that portion. That's yeah. that's what it is. It's either yeah. science themed or small themed and nothing else. Those are those are who he fights. And we um, want to be clear, like Pretty much any time that the atom is on screen, he is small. He gets yeah. smaller sometimes, but he is default small. It's not like... Six inches. He's not doing the whole uh, varying from like normal size down to small. It is varying from small down to very small. And the reason is because his suit becomes invisible the, the taller he gets. Because it's made of the, the dwarf star matter. And that's that they we explained this in the first episode that we cover with the atom. Um, so anytime he shrinks, he immediately looks like he's wearing the suit when he's six inches tall. It's because he's constantly wearing it all the time. The taller he gets, he stretches it out more and it becomes invisible. That was the whole gimmick with it. I had completely forgotten about that. Good so memory. that's why that's why he he stays small all the time is because that's as big as he can be when still in his suit and co- and covering his identity. So... That's why we see him as six inches tall with the JLA and with Gene and all the time is because he's trying to con- conceal his identity because the taller he gets, the more opaque <laughs> his suit becomes. It's really stupid. Uh, but he does have the um, atomic orbitals around him every time he shrinks and grows, which I love. That's my that's one of my favorite uh, visuals of comics is the Adam shrinking and growing with the, the atomic uh, things around him. So to clarify, are you... Are you basing that off of later iterations of this magical girl transformation or this current one? Every now and then we see it in these. It's not all the time, we, we but do. He, it just like it's not as impressive, but yes. it's a thing that we see, um, and it's just one of my favorite things about him. It's like the Flash having the multiple versions of the Flash everywhere, doing denoting super speed. The mm-hmm. Adam having those things around him, um, denoting his shrinking and growing, is always one of my favorite things because it was just like otherwise you had to draw him five times on a page to show him getting bigger. Instead, you can just draw these things, and it's like, oh, I know he's changing size. Like, for me, conceptually, and in terms of what I know it will eventually be, yes, I fully agree with that. Right now, it's it feels very static. Uh, it's Yeah, it, it's very um, Justice League cartoon of, touching his belt made of dwarf star material, the atom changes to his mighty might size. It's that, as opposed to, like, the Ant-Man the movie. Yeah, and the thing that gets me right now especially is it's three stages. It's one panel with like a large silhouette of him like normal size and then a silhouette of him like smaller uh, shrinking down into the version that he is going to be and that one's fully drawn out. But it's still, the panel is sized around the large size version. So the... His final form that is meant to be like, oh, this is who I am. It's the it's the chunk. It's the landing form. It's it's very lacking in detail because it's done so small relative to everything else, uh, yeah. relative to the panel and the pose also isn't very dynamic. Like, you know what it is? I'm gonna. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Joanne, but <laughs> it's a transformation. A 
about half an arc after they introduce it in DBZ. The point at which you can just flick and suddenly you're Super Saiyan. Like those fast right. cuts. Instead of like, there's not even like putting your arms out like with your fist. Just like, it's not even a, ah! it's, it's not any camera angle change. It's just standing right there and like effectively and then like arms yeah, akimbo Saiyan. and then doop down. That's it. That's our quota for, for DBZ references this episode. Uh, <laughs> Fair. The Atom number nine, November 1963. Uh, Ray makes a machine that when it like explodes in his face, creates an energy duplicate of him that tries to kill him so it can take his place in the real world. It doesn't. I don't know how else to explain <laughs> to you that it, that it doesn't do that. Uh, he's still around and he's not an energy dupe. This isn't a this isn't a brood saga thing where there's just brood X Men off in the fuck off space elsewhere that no one's ever touched anymore. It's this is a he made an energy dupe and then he made it smaller and by making it smaller the radiation wore off and it disappeared. That's it. Um, another time pool story in this issue. Um, he helps Henry Hudson get the contract to discover the Hudson River um, by freeing Henry Hudson from these French kidnappers. It's not important. Uh, bottom line, he saves this guy so he can go on his voyage. And then he also meets uh, the man who makes the first telescope, who I guess was friends with Henry Hudson. And that's cool, I guess. We're, we're happy about that. Uh, the final issue we're going to cover, the Atom, number 10, January 1964. Happy New Year. He helps stop foreign spies from getting booby-trapped anti-gravity metal uh, alongside the CIA. So this is the second time the Adams worked with the CIA. This The first time was when he stopped an impersonator of a scientist from getting into the country. Um, the second story here is he stops a bank robber woman who fools everyone into thinking that she's an anamorph. Um, yep. So I don't really know how else to explain that either. She, she basically is escaping from the cops and other people and then appears to turn into a swan, very anamorph style. Um, and then people are like, yeah, she's just, she's a fucking swan magician. And the Adam's like, no, she's got a trained swan and like some smoke and mirrors. And sure enough, he's right. That's the end of our coverage. Um, but a couple couple things that I believe we should talk about here. Um, first of all, just because we just talked about it. The Adam is, I think, the only member of the JLA who works with a named government organization outside of uh, the Army. Huh. And military intelligence. The only person I would, I would classify who does that next to him is Wonder Woman. But it's never the FBI, the CIA the NSA or the DOD, it is the military intelligence. Adam is the only one who works with the CIA occasionally. And that's especially interesting. And I'm going to talk about this a little more at length later on, but it's especially interesting in contrast to how nebulous the portrayal is of the enemy, the, our Cold War rival, or yeah. our Cold War enemies, I think, is the term that gets used. There's no specificity about, about it being the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact, but they're very specific about it being the CIA. You are absolutely correct. Yeah. They are foreign agents that are vaguely Eastern European. It's it's a stretch to say that they are any ethnicity other than quote-unquote foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the 1960s, which is when the CIA is doing a lot of stuff uh so it's interesting um secondly because the cia happens to go get get to adam through gene i want to talk about gene real quick every time the pair is introduced they introduce gene first and then ray 
It is lady lawyer Jean Loring and her boyfriend, research scientist Ray Palmer. Hmm. And I have no idea why that's the case. But it's interesting because Gardner Fox is writing these. Uh, the art is done by Gil Kane. But for Gardner Fox to put the significance of the woman's title first in every introductory statement between the two of them, that is a weirdly feminist move by Gardner Fox, who is also the same guy who says good girl uh, to yeah. Wonder Woman. It's such a, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it's a signification of. But I just found it really interesting that like most of the time, if not every time in these issues that we read through, Jean is introduced first. And Ray is tagging along with her mm-hmm. on whatever it is that she's doing. Um, Jean has never lost a case, apparently. Cool. Jean is a really good lawyer. I think that's really awesome that we kind of get that sort of clarification and characterization of her character, that she is really good at what she does. It's not just she's getting these cases by virtue of Ray being the Adam and sending them to her. She's actually a sought-after legal defender who has a reputation. Good for Jean. You know, very much the legal lowest lane, despite the fact that she looks like Carol Ferris. Yep. Almost like, almost exactly. Don't put the two of them in the same book. It will get confusing because they both dress like Jackie O. I, I don't I I don't know. Maybe that's a Gil Kane thing. Um next the next pair I want to talk about is Hawkman and the Atom. This is an interesting thing because the two of them are consistently drawn as buds. And I first noticed this in Identity Crisis when I was reading it when I was younger, is that Adam is always shown in pictures of the JLA to always be standing on Hawkman's shoulder. I don't know what that is. I don't know why. I've never seen any sort of like team up books with the two of them or like really long involved storylines, much like Brave and the Bold with Green Lantern and Green Arrow or Green Lantern and Flash or Superman and Batman. But it's always consistently a weird subtextual thing that, like, Ray and Carter are bros. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's just a thing I've seen in, in Young Justice in the sequence when everybody's getting inducted into the Justice League. Uh, Adam is standing on Hawkman's shoulder holding up his, you know, Justice League ID. And this is the first time we've ever seen them team up. And now apparently they're best bros because their girlfriends are cool with each other, too. It's just funny to me. So I think that... <laughs> is going to end up being a team-up thing because the Atom runs for, I think, 45 issues, and then it gets consolidated, I believe, with Hawkman. Uh, okay. I, I don't know whether he's guest-starring in with Hawkman or if there's a separate anthology comic that they're both in, but I believe that that's what happens. But then I have well, no idea go. how long that runs for. Cool. Um that is that is how that works though and i will be excited to see that because they're both characters i don't feel who get enough love and they're fun characters speaking of fun characters the adam's combat is dope yeah it is incredibly intricate or intricate and the fight choreography is really specifically thought out gardner fox does a lot of really good um prop work with everything in every fight sequence like he's getting small and he's pulling their ties together so they clunk heads or like tackling a guy in the knee when he's really tiny so it like puts him off balance or in the time travel uh, issues he's smacking a guy's sword that's in its scabbard so that it lifts up and bops a guy in the face like he's very specifically affecting the world around him in minute ways with the way that his powers work in such a way that it really feels like Gardner Fox took the time to understand what he was doing 
mm-hmm. and really was like, okay, he's tiny, but he's also, he weighs as much as a 180 pound person and how do physics work? And if he punches, it's like, it's fascinating to watch. Um, it's the most complex and well thought out. I think we've ever seen Gardner Fox's work be now, not to say that the Hawks aren't like with their culture and the way that they do things and their gear, they still just beat the crap out of stuff. And he name drops a bunch of historical things with this. It's like science and each fight has a bit like a, uh, an item bit. And, and it's, it just seems different. It feels different when you read these, as opposed to a high adventure story, like Adam strange or the Hawks. And this is like science pulp in, in, in a way that Adam strange doesn't come across as pulp sometimes because it's, it's Indiana Jones and it's action adventure. This is a guy solving a crime with just science. What I imagine Martian Manhunter is supposed to read like. This is the thing that I keep coming back to with Gardner Fox is to what degree his strengths shine on certain books because they are a certain way and that leads to certain like nudges in different directions versus to what degree he gets to formulate the books and just for some he just chooses to be one way because there are a lot of things about the Adam and Adam Strange where I look at them like oh this part of the the structure of these stories the the design constraints that have been put in place lead to this kind of creativity with the Adam. It's okay. He can't ever be six. He's never going to be six foot two uh, in combat. So he's never going to be able to just reach out and hit a guy. It always has to be something that he always has to reach the guy in some way. Uh, And then that leads to the creativity or is it that this is the book where he flexes his creativity and says, no, I want to do something interesting. And I don't know if if it's the chicken or the egg. I don't know to what degree he is intentionally choosing to do these creative things versus uh, I guess I have to figure something out. But one way or another, this is the most thought out and kinetic of the fights. Yeah. I do agree that there's a similarity in the way that Adam Strange solves his problems by like looking at things and piecing together how he can stop them. Like uh, you made a great you made a great reference in the last episode about how he figured out where the controls for the gut, the giant gun were. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he does with Adam Strange. Adam Strange is a thinking man's hero in the sense that he solves puzzles and and quandaries and, and comes up with something to save the day. Like he's the guy that, that disarms the bomb at the last second. The Adam is the brawler scientist guy who, for whatever reason, knows how to fight. We're not we're never going to talk about that, I'm sure. But he's also specifically a physicist, like like he's a research physicist. He's not like a biologist. He never really goes like, well, I know biology does this. He's not he doesn't appear to be a Swiss Army scientist like Adam Strange is. Or Doc oh. from the Challengers of the Unknown. Adam's, uh, the Adam, Ray Palmer, has a very specific set of knowledge that he has, which is shrinking, growing, and the way physics affects his body when he shrinks and grows and adjusts his weight. He's never, you know, he, you know, he has some basic physics knowledge of like, you know, states of matter and how matter affects it, you know, melting points and things like that. But that's physics. Um, he doesn't talk about biology or anything else uh, chemistry there's not a lot of chemistry talk either it just he seems to be a physicist and i think that's cool is that this is where his area of expertise is which is a thing it, that's brought up in the cartoons 
there's an episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold where Aquaman and the Atom go into Batman's body in sort of a fantastic voyage situation where they have to cure him from the inside. And they're talking they're, they're talking to each other and, you know, Aquaman's like, well, what's the prescription, Doc? He's like, I'm a physicist, not a biologist. <laughs> like, and he even kind of goes, he's like, I'm also like a nano, you know, technician or like a, a nano uh, machine inventor, but I don't really understand the body other than a cursory knowledge that science school gave me he's like I, I can't you know whip up a cure for him inside of his own body nor can i like prescribe him something i i'm a physicist and i thought that that's kind of cool that we kind of see the seeds of that here he's just doing physics based and that's cool that's great he doesn't have to be everything it's fun that he has a limitation on his knowledge and it's fun that like you said he has to find a way to do this while tiny that's his that that is his uh, mission parameters that he's been given and his rule set adam strange was you got to do it before the zeta beam radiation wears out the hawks are usually how can i incorporate uh ancient weaponry into into this problem that you can use to then fight someone because history how can i um, mace how, this yeah how do i merge ancient history with future how do i how do i do that with science fiction and the atom is Okay, what if he was just like tiny? Like, what if that was his whole bit? What if he was just tiny, like a small guy? And it's and it's fun. I mean, look, a third of these stories are great. Of the six or seven issues that we read, less than half the stories that you read are are great because it's standard Silver Age fare. The ones that are good are really fun. And I like it, and and I enjoyed these to a, to a degree. The ones that I enjoyed, I really enjoyed. The ones I didn't, I was like, meh, all right, whatever. Um, this could have been a Martian Manhunter story. I wouldn't have cared, you know. <laughs> like, give give this to John Jones. I don't really mind. You know, he could turn invisible and stretch, and there's no fire involved, so he would be fine. Um, but the ones that are specifically Adam Capers, like the Doctor Light one, was really cool. The one with Hawkman was really great. The time travel ones were fun. Like, they weren't particularly entertaining, but they were fun to see him, like, try and be tiny and save the day. Um, I don't know. Like, they, like they weren't amazing, but they were they were interesting to see how a guy whose main ability is shrinking <laughs> solved problems in the 1600s. <laughs> so I'll agree with that, but there's a specific thing that I want to call out uh, that made it harder for me to enjoy those. Uh they're the stories that most show Gardner Fox trying to show how smart he is. The thing that I kept coming yeah. back to was that they were stories where we had the most narrative asides of this means this. Like that's those are the ones that get me the most uh, were this word that this character just used means this. Uh, a Heath is a blank. Uh, a... God, I don't even remember what the other one, but there was something about like a, eh, it wasn't a ship, it was something else. Uh, but he had characters use words and then the narrator explained them so that he could show how smart he was. He had little scientific facts uh, about, oh, this is when this happened, uh, his, more historical f facts, I guess, uh, of this is when this happened, this was the context around this. And it was like, yeah, but some of it is flexing. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. I have that exact word written down, and it's one of the things that 
made me realize the difference between how he approaches that kind of exposition in a historical thing versus how Gardner Fox handled it with the sci-fi slash like science fantasy stuff of Adam Strange and one of the stories of the Adam because it's just like he'll do that mid-issue cutaway where someone explains all of the context of the what led to the threat that's now facing us it's like oh this is way more interesting than having just a little like narrative box aside I and I don't know to what degree that sometimes he's just better at it and sometimes if it's future fantasy stuff then it's easier for him to fall into the good pattern of doing uh, those like explanations that are really compelling. I don't know. I don't know how much credit to give Gardner Fox. I have never known how much credit to give Gardner Fox, but those are more interesting than when he has, uh, than when he plays where in the world is Carmen San Diego in the comments thread. There is a biography about Gardner Fox that I'm planning on buying. But also reading the start of the Adam Strange omnibus, the foreword, it sounds like a lot of the science insertion was Julia Schwartz, hmm. who I believe had okay. a degree in science. I did not know that. I think, I, don't quote huh. me on this. I will have to recheck my, my notes again. But according to the foreword, I think Julia Schwartz was really trying to shoehorn as much science into things as possible. And since the Adam is primarily an Earth-based hero, not an interplanetary hero, and he is based specifically off of physics, Julia Schwartz could have been like, put as much fucking science in this as you possibly can, because these have to be educational. This is the most educational book out of all of them, probably next to The Flash. And John Broom is writing that. And I want to take a moment to expand on that because I've mentioned this in the past, but I want to make sure I'm reiterating it. The amount of public service slash educational posturing, that's probably the right word for it, Yeah, uh, that happens not just in the stories themselves, but in the, in the ads and other little uh, bits that happen in the comics themselves. Uh, Put it this way, every single one of these issues included a one-page PSA uh, mm. for, let's see, it was things like, hey, stepping on a rusty nail, uh, or stepping on a nail, like, it doesn't matter if it's rusty or not, Get go in and get it checked out, because there might be tetanus. Uh, then there's things about the importance of raising money for UNICEF. Every single issue has... It's not just an ad, it's often intentionally integrating the DC characters to play up the importance of science, of learning, of libraries, of social justice, uh, of international social justice. Uh, And it is reassuring to see that even in the Silver Age, which I give the Silver Age and the Golden Age some shit... uh, that even then there was a real intent to be a social good. Because we're also at this stage, what, I, th- I want to say we're, I don't, uh, this is a sign of how hot it is. I don't remember how many years it's been at this point in the comics since the comics code. Uh, it's certainly Almost, been a couple. Yeah, we're nearing on 10 years. Yeah, and 
it's so it's not just that reflexive oh we have to we have to get them off our backs it's like this is in every issue and i'm glad that it is sometimes it's science specifically as well like that that's the bit that i guess i didn't mention is that uh, especially with the flash comics there's it's much more like science focused but yeah it's just i'm glad that there are those things that are intentionally trying to be educational. it isn't a turnoff so much as it's very obvious yes i will never be like oh my god you know stop uh you know putting science and education in comics i mean i think that's a really cool thing when they do that the flash facts are one of my favorite aspects of the flash when they start coming into an effect in the comics um but they're trying and it's obvious that they're trying uh one of the downsides to not having uh, multiple action figures worth of outfits on characters is Snapper Carr, when he is going around and uh, when in the one issue that he's actually a part of uh, where the Atom tags along with him uh, and is is stealthily looking at things while Snapper Carr is looking as well. Uh, Snapper Carr slides down a ravine in the same suit he wore to graduation. Do you do you not do that? No, I own multiple suits. Actually, that's a lie, but I own multiple sets of clothes. That's fair. Yeah, but you know the kids from Scooby Doo don't. Yeah, and it's good enough for them. God, that's true. How many of those ascots do you think uh, Fred wears or owns? A lot. Yeah, dumb moment, uh, but entertaining. Uh, I like when the logical consequences of the stories like set up play out in entertaining and unexpected ways like snapper at one point gets knocked out gets locked in a room and then this is during like the wish granting story where the alien is granting people stuff uh just based off what they're thinking and he busts out of the room because when he wakes up he visualizes like a fire axe and it's just like yeah no you you tied me up great whatever i'm out of this some of these were really good some of these were quite enjoyable. Uh, there were a couple that were a drag, but by and large, I was afraid that they were going to be much worse than they were. There were a couple in here that I especially liked the setup for. A decent number of the stories involved people who aren't supervillains. People who are just, like, not quite mobsters, but a step more gimmicky than mobsters, but a step less gimmicky than supervillains. Uh, yeah. But the ideas are still often cool the the idea of hypnotizing someone into doing the crime giving you the money and then the it gets blamed on them uh and they can't remember not doing it one of the things that sort of ties in with what i was getting at earlier with the uh sci-fi versus what the design constraints sort of push you towards uh the fact that these are more generally more real world kind of stories and less super science, uh, less sci-fi. It means that you have times where Gardner Fox goes a little too far sometimes, assuming that the science, just because it makes some amount of science sense, it's thematically good uh, and stretches a little too far on the science sense. There's a point where uh, where the atom is too small to clearly hear what someone is hypnotizing him into doing so it doesn't take effect mm-hmm. it's like yeah. that one especially 
just that one felt like bullshit. But there were fewer of those than I thought there were going to be. I I was yeah. really ready for this to be like the anti Adam Strange, where I had been so enthused about how everything sort of fit together well enough, and I was really worried that it was going to be this complete polar opposite, and it was nah, just kind of some missteps and some good steps. What I do think was a bit of a misstep purely for the continuity nerds among us, we had another version of DC Atlantis. This one comes complete with subatomic members of its community. <laughs> and none of them had uh, anything mermaid-ish. Like, that, yeah. that feels like a missed opportunity, but all right. Uh, speaking of uh, science and real-world science, um, there's the bit about how the Atlanteans chose to go small instead of going off-planet to escape the fate that was going to befall Atlantis. Uh, specifically because uh, there was another, I think it's the Van Allen belt uh, around Earth of radiation. And apparently the science is okay on that. Uh, so for context, the the Van Allen belts are just belts of radiation that are around the Earth that you have to go through in order to get out into space. Uh, and it is a legitimate concern to some degree like you do basic uh anti-radiation hardening on a spaceship and you're probably good you're gonna have more exposure out in space when you're not sh where you're not shielded by the atmosphere than you will going th through for a short time the van allen belts but yeah it's something that's there and it is possible for van allen belts to form temporarily like temporary in the geological sense of there for i'm guessing like thousands of years and then not there for thereafter um, hmm. so there's at least some basic scientific truth behind the idea that there could have been another van allen belt that kept them from expand uh from escaping up and away yeah i just have written down uh in response to the bit that you called out where uh where the Adam specifically is doing a bad impression of a Native American speech pattern. Uh, I just have written down, oh boy. Too far, Ray. Yeah. Too far. And it's specifically not the like wise Native American version. It's, it's more Peter Pan. Uh, it's Bugs. It's extra. Bugs doing a Native American accent that's true. and that's not true. a native american doing it it's bugs bunny pretending to be a native american and that got me thinking a little bit it's it's interesting because with so many other accents that get stereotyped by frankly by white people uh i can at least sort of hear where the origin is uh because we are both californian we're both like coastal urban Californians were around a lot of people for whom uh, English is their second or third language. And you can kind of hear at least the root before it gets magnified and distorted and stereotyped and made malicious. But I don't know anybody who has a quote unquote Native American accent. And the reason for that is, I mean, first off, for most of them, probably English still the primary language unless... I, I don't know if 
if English is the prime is the first and primary language on reservations, but also it's going to be different based on tribes and and personal experience, yeah. which is a long-winded way of me saying that for all I know, that style of speaking could have come from someone reading a transcript and saying, oh, this is my me inventing this accent out of whole cloth, just seeing a transcription of the words that were said. Uh, I have no idea the history of that white stereotype of, of Native American speech patterns. I do want to call out that on a more generally positive thing, or at least something we are enjoying, uh, the continuing trend of callbacks instead of returns, usually, the time pool does return, but by and large, we're getting uh, references back to past issues, the same thing that we've seen Gardner Fox do for the last little while. It kind of feels, that, in some ways, it kind of feels like we're the Gardner Fox show, where we're, we're going between uh, characters, but we're still seeing where Gar- what Gardner Fox is writing at this point in his career, and we're seeing the the motifs and styles repeated uh, in different branches of the gallery, but I'm fine with it. I like this building towards a shared universe. If you compare it to, I don't know, a, a podcast that did the exact same thing with Marvel, we'd be talking about Stan Lee just as much. Yeah, it's just it's just the nature of the beast at this point that Gardner Fox is writing a third of the titles that DC is putting out in regards to superheroes. It's just what he's doing. I feel like at some point we might need to try to figure out exactly what we mean by Gardner Foxing now, because I feel like it meant something very different back early days of the podcast, whereas now there are other things that I associate with Gardner Fox as a verb. But man, he's had this redemption arc. He definitely has come into his own. I mean... Mm -hmm. Just because Gardner Foxing itself was a, was a, something we attributed to a bad thing doesn't mean that he can't get better. I mean, Gardner Foxing is still giving you enough explanation for science, but going like, nah, it's not really that important. That's, that's a Gardner Fox thing that he does. I mean, and that's fine, but he has gotten better, and that's what you're supposed to do as a writer when you've been doing this and writing hundreds of comics for decades now. I mean, he was writing these. He was writing. He's been writing for like almost three decades. If he didn't get better, it'd be it'd be bad. <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm proud of him. You know, it's good to see him getting better and trying different things and throwing stuff at the wall. Agreed. The last note that I have, uh, and I touched on this one a little bit. It intrigues me the lengths that Gardner Fox goes to avoid referring specifically to the Soviet Union as an antagonistic force. It might be Gardner Fox specifically is maybe a little too strong of a word, but like I vaguely remember, uh, I think, think a Martian Manhunter story uh, also similarly referring to uh, the Soviet Union as a foreign agents, uh, an enemy country or something like that, instead of referring to the Soviet Union by name. And it's especially interesting to me because it's in contrast to what I think of as quote-unquote Cold War culture because for you and me growing up like in the shadow of the 80s, I suppose, uh, 
that Cold Warrior Reaganism, like Rambo era is uh, Red Dawn is kind of how I think of at least how pop culture would portray uh, the Soviet Union when it's being depicted in an antagonistic role. Uh, and I don't know to what degree it's that these are stories from a particular era of the Cold War, uh, or if it's that it's just these comics or these writers. I don't know. And the bit that also makes it a little more interesting even is the way that we have done similar things in our own era, what I kind of think of as the for the forever war period, because you have our our Red Dawn, the Red Dawn reboot from, uh, th- I guess, three years ago was, oh, no, it's not China. <laughs> it's a reunified Korea. So, like, even two degrees of fictionalization there or, uh, I guess, de-specification. Uh, and then Call of Duty Modern Warfare and Battlefield 3 and 4 both had an explanation for why the Russians were either, like, misled or ultra-nationalisted into being the antagonist. Uh, Homefront was about Koreans. Oh, yeah. The Homefront game, which is what Red Dawn really resembles as the Homefront video game. I forgot about that. And nobody wants to talk about that, but it is pretty much just the Homefront video game, and they just called it Red Dawn. Huh. Fair enough. I think that about does it on my end. You got anything, or shall we move to recommendations? I have one that I forgot last time, but I'm glad that I recommended what I did last time. Um, I've been listening to things as I've been working at my job, and one of the YouTube series that I've come across is called History Buffs. Specifically, it is a YouTube channel uh, done by a fellow named Nick Hodges, who watches films in his- set in historical time periods, films or television shows, and rates the accuracy of the history within oh. them. And it's really cool um, because he will take a movie that he likes. Like he'll go, I like the movie Last Samurai. It is not a historical film, but I like it. And we're going to talk about it. And then he goes into the whole idea of like um, the Meiji Restoration. That's what it is. He, he starts and he does a whole bit before he even talks about the movie. He's like, we're going to talk about the Meiji Restoration. And then explains like this is why japan was industrializing and this is what was going on and this is and i was like oh okay and he goes so the last samurai is a fictional film set in a historical period do they get some of the history right he goes yeah actually kind of <laughs> and he kind of like talks about that and he goes like it's it's interesting to see what they got right and what they were like man fucking tom cruise <laughs> you know um and then uh, i think one of my favorite ones that he does is the movie zulu mm. um and he does a really, really fascinating thing, uh, like a whole bit about who the Zulu were, how the movie portrays the Zulu and how the Zulu are actually viewed as respectful and and impressively shown. And he's like, this is actually a really good representation of Zulu warriors in a way that isn't condescending. Um, and it's actually really impressively shot. And the, the you know, everything is really historically accurate from the way that people are dressed and like how they interact with each other. It, it's it's a fun YouTube channel to see because he, he does a lot of different types of movies. He treats every country's history respectfully and dings the movie for not being historically accurate and respectful. He's like, there's ways that you could have done this that didn't have to do this or, you know, this is very clearly American propaganda or this is very clearly British propaganda or whatever. And he's just like, it's not necessary to be that way. Like uh, he took some of the criticism about Dunkirk not having a very diverse cast. And he goes, now, look, 
yes, there were people of color at Dunkirk, they were there, but there were 10,000 or like some ridiculous amount of people at Dunkirk, and the percentage of people of color that were there is less than 10%. He's like, it would have been hard to see them. And he goes, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have them in there. He goes, if they wanted to show uh, soldiers from India, there is factual evidence that shows that there were soldiers from India there. Same thing with um, men of color who were Afri- who were, who were uh, of African descent. And he goes, that's a fact that those people were there. Would it have been easy to show them? Possibly. Would it have made sense historically? I don't know. And so he kind of does those types of arguments, which I really appreciated, where he, he, doesn't, he doesn't ignore people asking for representation. He's like, I love Lawrence of Arabia, but the main Arab man in that film is played by Sir Alec Guinness. He's like, that's a white guy, and that's not right. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, he's woke enough that he's not just history buff, and I like movies that are historically accurate, and it's got to be historically accurate, and that's it. He's socially aware as well. So it's 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 a nice change of pace to see a channel that is a champion of history but also acknowledges the failings of the things that he enjoys for the sake of being historically accurate and striving to be respectful about the history of everything that is in the film. So it's, it's, it's really neat. It's, I, I think it's worth a watch if anybody is actual, you know, a fan of history based historical based fiction and historical films like Matt and I are, it's just a different perspective to see things through that lens with someone who does the research for you. And you can go back and watch that and, be like, wow, this is really neat. And learn something. Education is fun. Learning about new cultures is interesting. And, you know, being exposed to that history is really cool. On my end, I'm going to make a recommendation for something that I haven't read yet. Um, I think I've probably talked about Dan Carlin on this show. Uh, so Dan Carlin, uh, yes. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast uh, that I, about history that I very much enjoy. Like four-hour episodes at this point uh, comes out maybe one every six months or something like that. Uh, and he does these long series that are very narrative driven, uh, but also very good at giving a personal or feeling driven, uh, feeling slash story driven uh, relationship with the big picture history. Uh, and apparently he's got a book coming out uh, called, it's oh. like, I think it's called the, the End is Always Near. And it's about just here are all of the times, like, let's talk about different times in history where we've been sort of close to stuff going wrong uh, or times when things have gone wrong. And I don't know any details beyond that, but I'm super psyched that he has a book coming out and I need to read it. Good for him. That's cool. The other thing he's doing that's fascinating, and I have no idea how I would ever be able to like see this, but as part of a World War One exhibit, uh, like he did like the historical research to either consult or be the design lead, maybe even for like a I think it's a either a VR or like an immersive experience of World War One as. A soldier in the trenches, which wow, all right, yeah. The descriptions of Passchendaele that were in his shows were absolutely goddamn horrifying. So, all right, yeah. That is a that is a choice to make, but also a thing that could enlighten folks. Well, I think that will about do it for us for this episode. 
Next, it is uh, time to go to Aqua House, finish off the A's, and check out Aquaman and see how he's doing. Uh, don't forget to uh, be kind to each other in these coming days of, you know, the heat and also, you know, the end of the year. And we'll see you all next time. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We hadn't expected this much crossover in the Adam stories, let alone with Hawkman. Gardner Fox's nascent shared universe was spreading through all of the books that he was working on. We said our farewells and checked the seals on our deep sea diving suits. It was time to go back to Atlantis.